Welcome to the Fierce Mama Warrior Podcast. This is your host, Jackie Hyman, and this is your hub of women who live to improve the lives of other women on the motherhood journey, health, wellness, and being their best. Fierce Mama Warriors, welcome back. We have arrived at episode number 10. Yay! Episode game is strong. I'm having so much fun bringing you all these awesome conversations with some of the most inspiring women that I have met. Today is no exception. While I was searching for a way to reconcile a lot of my modern views and core values with ancient traditional religious Judaism, I stumbled upon a podcast called Intimate Judaism in which a sex therapist and a rabbi sit down and hash out all of the issues surrounding sex, Jewish law, Jewish culture, religious Jewish culture, and I was blown away, especially by the woman who is a sex therapist, Tali Rosenbaum, Tali Rosenbaum, excuse me, who just gave us such a fresh, refreshing perspective on these issues concerning sex, desire, and Jewish texts and Jewish law. And, um, looking at sexual issues both from the perspective of Jewish law and from the perspective of what it means to be sexually healthy and have a sexually healthy uh, marriage and relationship. So I bring you today, Tali Rosenbaum. In this episode, you will learn why being a pelvic health physiotherapist drove Tali Rosenbaum to actually go back to school, recertify, and become a sex therapist. You will learn about how the ways we do and don't talk about sex in the religious Jewish community affect couples. And you will learn about Tali Rosenbaum's famous episode on self-pleasure and how she succeeded in releasing some of the shame around that. And you will get a little peek from Tali Rosenbaum's new book coming out and how she addresses there the paradox of monogamy and passion and desire. This is such a good one, Fierce Mama Warriors. So important to talk about these issues. It's juicy, Listener discretion is advised, obviously. Here you go. Enjoy. Tali Rosenbaum, welcome to the show. Hi. I'm so honored to have you here. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your thoughts. You have your own podcast, Intimate Judaism. And I'm a pretty avid listener, so like I've listened to most episodes. And it's more geared towards a religious audience. Is that correct? 
Yes, it's a diverse audience. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. You could not have made it easier by coming to my house. Yeah, good. <laughs> so thanks. Um, our our audience is quite diverse. We don't have a really good way to measure the demographics or the statistics of the demographics of our listeners, but we do have a lot of listeners, and it seems that it's a pretty diverse crowd of listeners across the spectrum of orthodoxy, but not all of our listeners are orthodox and not all of our listeners are Jewish. Okay. Although the it's from gathering, just gathering what I've heard from you, it seems like a lot of your clientele base are orthodox. Absolutely. So yes. tell us a little bit about how you came to go in that direction with your, with your work. Um, when you say the direction, are you talking about the direction of dealing with Orthodox Yes, the direction populations? of dealing with Orthodox populations. Well, I think exactly. that's kind of a natural progression because um, I am a couples therapist and I'm a sex therapist. And a lot of the issues that come up around couples therapy and sex therapy uh, often have to do with, you know, we look at the, um, we look at sexual issues or intimacy issues from a lens of biopsycho and social. So there's biological contributors, there's psychological contributors, but there's also social. And the social refers to the cultural, the religious, the um, dynamics in the family, in the life cycle. And so for Orthodox couples, issues such as Tarat HaMishpacha, um, which have to do with Nida and Mikvah, are very salient parts of life. When you come to therapy, there's so much that you want to talk about. When you have to start explaining those things, it's very, very time-consuming. And I think that one thing, especially my modern Orthodox clients, they just like to be able to use initials from camps <laughs> or... I, you know, I, I'm part of that culture and they know that I know what they're talking about when they use the code. So I think that that's partially why couples feel comfortable um, choosing a therapist from a similar milieu. I also see very Haredi clients and that's not my lifestyle, but there are Haredi clients that look for professional uh, titles and professional skills and certifications, particularly because they find it, first of all, there are many, many, many people who practice in the Haredi world who are not necessarily um, certified practitioners or don't necessarily have the requisite training. So people will look for that. And in addition, they'll look for cultural sensitivity and understanding. And that's something that I try to put into my approach. Great. You mentioned a code. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about what, like what code? Well, I think that when you even use terms that have to do with mikvah or nida or anything having to do with certain customs, if you mention camps, schools, and you use initials, YU, KBY, okay. <laughs> MMY, I know what they're talking about. Right. <laughs> so they don't have to go explain right. themselves from right. the beginning. Right. That's very helpful. What I... I guess, connect to most from the episodes is that it's refreshing for the first time hearing people talk so matter-of-factly about these issues surrounding religious couples and um, people who are religious and their sexual health. So what gives you the courage to speak so publicly about such taboo and intimate subjects for a religious audience? 
Well, I never really thought of it as having courage. I have worked across populations and I am familiar with other cultures. I'm part of the world. I go to conferences and I believe that sexuality is part of being human and we all long for connection. We're all wired for connection and it doesn't matter, you know, what we have on our heads. It's what we have in our hearts. People are basically people. And so I don't really think that you need any particular bravery to speak about sexuality. Religious people are just as involved in sexuality as anybody else. And so there is really no particular reason to avoid the subject. There are cultural, perhaps taboos around open discussion of sexuality. I'm aware of that. However, if we take that to the extreme, then we deprive our children of education. And do you know where they go when they want to find out the information? The internet. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I guess what I had in mind was more of the halachic issues that you bring up, the, um, the issues that have to do with Jewish law. Jewish law is something that's held to be very sacred and non-touchable. And I guess I've, it was refreshing for me to sort of hear somebody matter-of-factly take on so, some of those issues and say like, well, hey, this is affecting people's sexual health. It might need to be revisited or reviewed. <laughs> um, do you, it seems like you may get a lot of pushback for that. And- Yeah, well, look, I'm a therapist. Mm -hmm. And when I sit in the room with a client, an individual, or with a couple, I don't have a particular religious agenda. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a college teacher. I'm not somebody who is committed to somebody else's practice of the faith. And that's an important distinction between, let's say, uh, Rabbi Khan, Rabbi Scott, and myself on this program. I think it's really important that there's a lot of communication and interaction between mental health professionals and clergy or any kind of leaders, religious leaders, so that there is a mutual understanding of how mental health can be or sexual health or physical health um, can be affected by Jewish law and vice versa. That's amazing that that's happening. And I think it can really change things for the better. I'm wondering where that passion comes from, though, for you personally. Is there a certain thing that drives you to do the work you do in this specific field? Well, you know, I don't have a specific agenda about sexuality. I know that it was interesting when I reviewed some of the questions that you sent me. You sent me questions along the line as of, you know, what is the one most important thing you would tell mothers about sex? Or what is the one thing to buy that would, you know, I guess, make you want to be more sexual? I don't have an agenda to sell sex. I have the desire to promote the values of mutuality, consent, autonomy, basically human rights as relates to intimacy between couples. And so as such, it may not necessarily be about how to be more sexual. Sometimes it might be about the permission to say, no, this isn't something that I'm interested in pursuing at this point and to be able to talk that out. 
I would say that it's really about reflection. It's really about understanding what's underneath and what's deeper. And also seeing in my practice a lot of things that kind of repeat themselves in the population. So, for example, the conflicts, the existential conflicts of arousal and masturbation or just the feelings of sexuality before there is a legitimate halachic way to express partnered sexuality. That would be one kind of existential conflict for everyone, um, more men than women, but that's something that's quite common. Another kind of existential conflict that I see a lot, especially in the more Haredi circles, but I think that in a sense it cuts across all communities and also worldwide in terms of other cultures, that there seems to be this sense that women get from their cultures that sex is something that they need to, that they are obligated to provide to their husbands so that we call it mate guarding, so that they guard their mate from from cheating, quote unquote, or from pornography or from let's put it this way, um, wasting seed, Mm -hmm. which is a really big one. So when you are kind of involved in the same discussions over and over, the same hang-ups, the same machsomim, I guess you would call them barriers to healthy sexuality, then there's a motivation there to have the conversation and to broaden the conversations about sexuality because we're sexual human beings. We're sexual human beings from the moment we're created. Do you sort of try to get women to see that guarding their partner from certain actions is not their responsibility? Yes, I do. But also you need to understand what the dynamic is because very often the partner doesn't see it as their responsibility either. And so those listening may think that, you know, there's a feminist agenda, um, but very often there is a belief about their partner's abilities or inabilities to contain certain situations, which really isn't necessarily there. And so every case kind of needs to be unpacked. Amazing. Is there something that happened to you personally that guided you toward this field? Well, I can tell you this. I began my career as a very young person, went to college, and the first thing I did was I studied physical therapy. And I became a physical therapist of the pelvic floor And it was quite interesting in the sense that I was knowledgeable in the mechanics. But after about 15, 20 years of doing it, it felt very limiting. People were coming in and there was a lot more underneath their presentations, whether it was pain or whether it was sexual dysfunction, uh, difficulty in feeling aroused, um, difficulties with their pelvic floor muscles. And... I was very limited in really being able to use what I know about the mind-body connection in an effective way. And I also felt that my skills were not... I I was bored doing the physical work and uh, I was ready for something, for a journey, for something deeper. I was spending a lot of time already talking to my clients and, and, and they didn't come in to talk, but they needed to talk. And the idea of sending them to somebody else to talk when we already established a connection was very splitting. And so I thought that maybe I could do both for a while, but I could not. And so I've not practiced any physical therapy in the past 10 or even more years, maybe 15 even. It's been a while. 
to the extent that I don't even know if I remember any basic anatomy, um, but I do have that in my pocket as a factor that I'm aware of. I do refer to physical therapists. I think they do amazing work. It's a really, really important field. But if you ask me about something personal about me, I would say that that's a very big part of my journey is kind of the, the movement towards depth, you know, what's really going on here, understanding that pelvic floor presentations are just a window to the soul of the individual who's suffering from something. There's something much deeper going on and that need to understand that depth pulled me towards needing to go back to school and retrain and go to graduate school and, you know, do all kinds of stage, how do you say that? (laughs) Internships Um, and become a become a therapist. Amazing. So you decided that it it wasn't enough to just address the physical For me it wasn't. Because you saw that there were overarching issues that were deeper. Well, I would say not only that, there were women who would dissociate from what was happening. And so I understood that these were traumatic responses. These women were not present. And, you know, the idea of working with them physically when they were even saying things like, you know, I just need to be able to have sex. It doesn't even have to be good. I just don't want it to hurt. And I thought to myself, what kind of lack of entitlement is behind that statement? And how sustainable can sex be when there's no expectation for your own pleasure, but you just feel like you have to function in order to provide a service? That really was difficult for me. And I would say that that probably is what pushed my passion in this field. It's like, why is that the bar? Why that is it that doesn't the bar? hurt? That it doesn't hurt, exactly. And why are, and I don't mean to disrespect college teachers. I think they do a very important job. And I think that there are wonderful, wonderful college teachers out there. But what I'm hearing from my clients that they were told that you can't say no and that it does hurt in the beginning eventually, maybe you'll like it, but there really isn't any information being provided about pleasure or entitlement to pleasure. That's very frustrating. And by the way, it's not only the women who I have empathy for. It's also the young men who are taught that you have to do whatever your wife wants whenever she wants and they are clueless about how to communicate about how to know what their wives want when their wives themselves don't. And it just feels like, you know, it's a new role that you take on, especially in a community where you really don't have any intimacy before marriage. You hardly have emotional intimacy before marriage. And then you're expected to perform, to function in an area which is really foreign And it's a journey and not always does it feel like a journey. It feels like it's something you have to know how to do overnight. You have to accomplish. Even the language that's used around marital consummation is, you know, did you, did you succeed? Um, And and people would come in, you know, we we can't manage, we're failing at, as if sex is like a pass-fail, which it is not. No, it's not. It is not meant to be. It is meant to be a place of, no, it's meant to be, a place of many, many different possibilities there. Connection, I would say sometimes even playfulness, pleasure, sometimes a spiritual bond, not necessarily. Sometimes it's a place to talk dirty. I mean, there's all sorts of meanings in sex and they're all okay as long as they're mutual and consensual. Amazing. 
So you had one episode on intimate Judaism that sort of got a lot of attention. Or was it, it was an episode on another podcast that caused you to even make a new podcast just centering on sexuality and, and religious Judaism. Is that right? Yes. My, um, my partner in intimate Judaism, uh, Rabbi Scott Kahn, has a Jewish coffee house or organization or business that he runs. Oh, it's his? It's, Jewish coffee yeah, house is his? it's his. Coffee. And he awesome. has several podcasts. So he was hosting a podcast called um, Orthodox Conundrum, and he interviewed a young man, a rabbi, a, rabbi, a Chabad rabbi, Chabad-trained rabbi who wrote a book. His name is Yaakov Horowitz, and he wrote a book called Halachic Positions, where he really compiled a great deal of sources about sex and sexuality in order to demonstrate that there's a lot that is kind of held back from public knowledge regarding the permissibility of many different um, sexual acts so to speak. And one of the topics that they talked about was masturbation from a text-based place where how even the quote-unquote sin of masturbation turned into what it turned into today, which is very much influenced by history, by Kabbalistic sources. Um, And that discussion, he mentioned me in the discussion which led Scott to find me and then we he interviewed me for for the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. That was a very popular episode and so we launched our own. So what do you think it was about that particular episode that drew so much attention and how do you think it helped people to have well, that public conversation? I think that it totally normalized for people that the experience of arousal is a human and universal experience. Sexual curiosity and arousal is part of the natural development of the self. And while there are perhaps strict laws prescribing sexual behavior in our in our tradition, sex is meant to, at least for today, I mean, our early, early, early sources don't necessarily grab that, but our sex for today is meant to occur after a contract, marital contract, and at certain times, and only with your wife, and today it's only one wife. Um, So there have been many formulations uh, over the centuries, but as far as it goes today, premarital sex is not considered an okay thing. And so as such, the sexual... And also, I imagine that people married really, really young um, in in more ancient times, and we are in a modern society. So we're trying to juggle the idea that we don't get married that young with the same prescriptions against sexual behavior that um, limit sexual behavior, partnered sexual behavior to marriage... And then what do you do? And what do you do when you're 18, 19, when you're 16, 15, 14, 11, whatever? What do you do? Right. What do you do when you have curiosity, interest? Where do you put it? Where do you go with it? Where do you go to ask your questions? Um, what do you do with the kind of natural desire to self explore? How do you talk about it? Do you talk about it? Or does it become a deep, dark secret? which it often ends up being, and it doesn't become a split part of 
your development of your sense of self. Really, I'm a good religious person in every way, but there's this tiny part of me and I don't really want to think about it too much. Um, it happens sometimes late at night and I just can't help myself. And, you know, and this is this deep, dark part of me. And I think that what that podcast did was that it said, well, of course you masturbate. Who, I mean, everybody does <laughs> just about. It's a normal part of development. And yeah, you're conflicted about it. Well, I think that's also part of the story of being a Jew. We get conflicted about a lot of our primal urges. You know, we also walk through an airport somewhere when we're starving and we smell Cinnabons, but we can't eat them because they're not kosher. So, you know, hello, that welcome to being a Jew. It's not wow. always easy. And sometimes we fail. Wow. So sort of allowing people to release some of that shame that doesn't have to be a, a deep, dark secret that it's just human. It's human and it's normal. And like everything else, we should regulate it. But, you know, sometimes we just can't and that's okay too. We Sometimes we might choose to for whatever reasons, for, for our own mental health, physical health, physical comfort, do it anyway. Yes, that happens too. And that happens also as we talk about partnered sexual activities before marriage as well. It does happen. So if it's going to happen, how can it happen as part of the integrated experience of being human? How could it happen with communication, with autonomy, with consent, with respect? self-respect as well as respect to your partner. I love it. Uh, what are some more of the ways that in which, you know, how have the ways in which we do or don't talk about sex impacted couples? So seen? the ways in which we don't talk about sex impacts couples because there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of loneliness, particularly when there isn't an easy access to knowledge and information. And there are sexual issues which they can't just talk about at the Shabbos table when they're talking about other issues with the kids or with even with each other. But when it comes to sex, it's not a public discussion. And so couples feel very alone. And so the ways in which we don't talk about sex definitely impact couples. The ways in which we do talk about sex, particularly if it is about if it's reduced to when you're allowed and when you're not or times as though it's a function of um, dates according to the calendar and not a function of the relationship, the energy between a couple, desire, passion, wanting, loving, caring, compassion, um, all of those factors and you know, we talk about it as though it's an act that you do. There's a beginning, a middle, and end, and you do it on certain nights, and you do it at certain times, and you do... As a matter of fact, we just... Um, Scott and I just um, recorded a podcast on the idea of pleasure. And as you know, the format is, is that Scott starts out with sources, and then I come in and say, well... <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. I love that part. <laughs> so um, Scott prepared the sources, Ke'ilu, on pleasure, and what he ended up bringing was sources about, you know... The rabbis who say, well, if you're a Talmud Chacham, you do it once a week. And if you're the, and I said to him, okay, like we got to get this podcast out. So I'm not going to argue with you, but you're conflating sexual pleasure with frequency of intercourse. 
And they're not the same thing. That's the whole point. Wow. It's foreign to me that someone would conflate them. <laughs> like, like The sources yeah. often do. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the sources he brought, I mean, you know, there's a lot of sources that talk about pleasure and the power of pleasure. They're more like agotic, Talmudic sources. Right. And um, the focus was a little bit more on... What do the what do the sages say? What do the rabbis say? What do more modern contemporary rabbis say? What does Chaim Ozer say? What does Raf Feinstein say? What does Raf Salvechik, of course, that's one of his favorites, say? So it's still a good podcast, and I hope everyone listens to it. I'm definitely going to listen to it. I'm very interested. I'm wondering, do you think that it's? I don't know. I I always had a hard time with friends who mentioned that they have their rabbi decide a lot of their intimate decisions for them as in like oh you have to do it once a week at this time (laughs) like it's such a personal intimate thing um, to then give up the control to someone who isn't in the relationship um, always bothered me I'm wondering if it if it bothers you too if you have anything anything to say on that well I guess a lot of it is cultural do you find that that's true in your social network that rabbis tell couples how often they should be having sex? Yes. You do? I mean, with certain, not, it's not widespread, but, uh, you know, I do have more than one friend who I've heard that from. Yeah. Well, look, I think that um, a lot of it stems on the side of the couple or of the individual from a sense of, insecurity, anxiety, need for reassurance or for guidance. And from the rabbi's point of view, I would also question what is motivating the rabbi to provide these specific guidelines? Um, What is their um, take? What do they get out of that? I would be very suspicious or curious about trying to understand that. Um, I don't think that rabbis belong to that extent in the bedroom, obviously. And there's there's also a potential there for abuse. So yes, it is quite concerning to me. We, we talk about it in our book. Um, I've recently published a book with David Ribner and the name of the book is um, I Am For My Beloved, A Guide to Enhancing, A Guide to Enhancing Intimacy for Married Couples. And we have a section about dealing with clergy and kind of guidelines for how to use clergy in a way that isn't going to feel invasive to you. And if it does feel invasive to you, what to do about that, how to kind of hone your intuitive sense to understand when something is off. Because as my colleague Dave Rubner likes to say, rabbis are humans, they're just people and they have their own experience of sexuality as well. And so we have to be really careful, just like we tell our kids to be careful on the playground. We just have to be really careful. And practice listening to ourselves first. Yeah, I I believe in empowerment also um, religiously. If, if, If sources are important, if halacha is important to you, if that way of life is important to you, then go learn and also take advantage of a more comfortable way to deal with halachic issues by 
talking to Yotzot or talking to some of the women who are ordained and who have a vast amount of knowledge in this area. And so there's less potential for feeling somewhat overexposed or even violated. Um, do you believe that things are shifting for the better in the religious world regarding healthy sexuality? I, I believe, I'd like to say yes. I mean, we, I just returned from a conference in New York, it, Nefesh, which is a mental health organization for Orthodox. And it's, pr- I mean, I was like one of the only women there without hair, head covering. It's very, it's pretty firm. And there were a lot of Hasidim there too. And um, our workshop on um, sexuality or pleasure or presenting our book, et cetera. It was very, very well attended. People asked questions very openly. We're very comfortable about the subject. People came over to me afterwards. I think that mental health professionals, there are organizations, there are Haredi organizations that deals with couples and there's A-Time and there's Taharenu and there's, you know, there's, and, and, and the Hardal, the Mahon Pua. And there's like, again, it's a lot of rabbinic figures that are involved um, but there's also on the more modern side of things, there's Merkaz Yehel in um, here in Israel where they train lay people in providing guidance in sexuality. Um, and that is an organization that was founded by uh, Dr. Michal Prince. Um, there's the Eden Center, Naomi Grummet, Marmon, she's amazing. And so I think that there has been a lot that is moving forward. And if I left anybody out, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great to hear. It gives, I think, people a lot of hope yes. um, that things can be, I guess that the shame can, that a lot of the shame surrounding sexuality can be released. Um, on that note, how do you believe that sex therapy can change the world for the better? Well, you know, this is a very macro question. And I don't necessarily believe that sex therapy can change the world for the better. I don't have that as an agenda or it's not something I really think about that much because I I think on a very micro level with, with each individual that I see and each couple that I see. And again, I don't push sex as an agenda. Um, I happen to be trained and certified with the skills of a sex therapy, sex therapist. And as such, I am able to address sexual functioning and sexuality as part of my work as a therapist. Um, But I don't sell sex. That's not my agenda. I, like I said in the beginning, um, I think that there are a lot of benefits to healthy sexuality. There are individual benefits. It's healthy. It's good for you. I think that there are definitely couples benefits. I am a promoter of emotional and physical intimacy. Um, But do I think that sex therapy, I mean, I I, I suppose as a member of the sex therapy organizations, I can give you an example of how sex therapy does change the world for the better. Um, There was recently in uh, September, the World Congress of the World Association for Sexual Health. And they came out with a position paper on pleasure um, where they came out with the idea that sexual pleasure is a, is a right, not a right at the cost, obviously, of somebody else's um, autonomy or consent, but that sexual pleasure is a right of a human being. So in institutions, 
for example, or even in prison or in um, relationships. It's an entitlement to expect pleasure and it is not okay to provide sex in a relationship as a service it's not sustainable without the entitlement of pleasure. It's a, it's kind of a long document, but I would say that that's probably on a macro level what um, sex therapy as a profession might contribute to the world. Um, the idea of more massive educational programs, um, correcting misinformation about uh, pornography or... Um, monogamy or kind of normalizing that everybody across the spectrum of faiths, of cultures, probably struggles with very similar issues. So instead of coming and saying like, you know, you better be sexually healthy or else, it's more like this is something that can help you and you need to be whatever you want to be, but it's mostly about autonomy, consent, and being true to yourself, but you're not pushing like, like, well, it's, you better feel pr- pleasure. You better. You well, know. on the contrary, I think that people come in, often a couple will come in and say, you know, um, fix my partner. You know, my partner's broken, whether it's the man or the woman, most often it's the man saying, you know, my wife is broken. There's something wrong with her. She's not interested. She doesn't enjoy sex. Maybe she needs hormones. Maybe she needs testosterone. Maybe she, you know, there's something broken that needs to be fixed. And, you know, we call that the, the, um, the IP, you know, the person who is presented as the one with the pathology. And very often, if I'm unpacking it, what I'll find is that this is not about any kind of lack of desire. This is completely about the relationship or maybe there's depression that's underlying. It's, it, you can't really isolate sex or sexual function. If somebody like that comes to a sex therapist and the sex therapist says, okay, well then, you know, this is what you need to do. You need, let's see, do you masturbate? You know, do you know, here's a vibrator. Do you know where your clitoris is? Go home and here's your exercises and do this and do that. And most, more often than not, those behavioral approaches are going to end up backfiring and the woman's going to feel even worse. And there's going to be... Well, because that collusion with the husband, that in fact this woman is problematic and her holding back is problematic to the marriage, is going to reenact her feelings of not being seen and not being understood. And the dynamic where he pushes for it is also going to be reenacted because he's going to push her, are you doing your exercises? And she's not because she's not motivated to because of many other factors that have not been looked at. Um, there's always a dynamic. And if she's withholding sexually, there's probably a lot of stuff that's being withheld from her. Um, maybe it's emotionally or maybe, maybe it's other things, but there's always a dynamic and that dynamic needs to be identified. So I've kind of moved away from viewing sex therapy as a behavioral journey of, of um, psychoeducation and skills and exercises. Not that that's not necessary for many, many couples. And I'm sure that for the couples for whom it's necessary, they get that and they're fine. But the couples that see me, you know, they've done all that. They've been there, done that, hasn't helped, hasn't worked. 
And it's because there's a lot more going on than just, I don't know where the clitoris is. So there's deeper issues that you're... Often, yeah. You're looking to uncover. Yeah, most often there is, yeah. What do you wish that more mothers knew about intimacy? So the question of what I wish is exactly not the issue. Okay. Again. <laughs> I'm getting it. Okay. I'm getting so it. These, Slowly getting it. Because <laughs> the questions are not about what... what I guess what I wish is that women wouldn't feel that there is something that I or anybody else or cultural or society would wish for them. In other words, empowerment is really about knowing yourself and knowing what's good for you and knowing that, you know, for some women, they need to know that they have permission to have sex. Whereas for other women, what they would need to know is that they have permission to not, to say no to sex. And so it's very unique and it's very individual and it's very much a part of development and it's not a function of being a good wife um, because there's a lot of that. There's a lot of guilt and a lot of feeling that, um, you know, I'm not okay because, I'm not good enough because. And I also want to say that just because it's not an infrequent presentation that after childbirth or with a lot of little kids and you're tired, that it's the woman who wants less and the man who wants more. But I, I want to say that very often I have couples that come to me and it's the other way around where he's not interested and he's not motivated and he's not available. Usually it comes along with emotional availability as well as physical availability, but, but often the dynamic is the other way around. And that's also important. I mean, women in those situations feel marginalized because a lot of the literature that's out there is about, you know, I think that it normalizes more for women that they're not interested and that their husbands are. And so they feel even more marginalized by the presenting situation. They feel like they're freaks. Something's wrong with them that they want to have sex. Wow. So you're saying we've been given such a strong story about mothers being too tired to have sex that we're sort of, we've sort of like identified with that. And then if that isn't happening, then there's a little bit of What's wrong shame, with me? Yeah, what's wrong with that? me that I do want to have sex? And the truth is, is that for some women, for some mothers, having sex is the one place where they get taken care of and where their needs get met and where they don't have to, feel like a mom. And so I think one of the questions that you had sent me was about like something having to do with advice about sex. And I kind of thought, well, this is really more for the husbands. Um, I think that the thing that is the most turnoff for women is viewing sex as another place to take care of someone else's needs. And when you're a mom and you take care of all day of kids' basic primal needs, whether it's their runny nose or they're hungry or you wipe their butt or, you know, all the things that you do as a young mother, the last thing that'll turn you on is the husband that comes and says, I really need to. It's my turn now to get a piece of you. And so I think that reframing sex from that um, whether it's that begging dynamic or even the angry dynamic, like when is it my turn? 
um, reframing it to, you know, now how can I take care of you? How can I make you happy? How can you regress and lay there and let me hold you? And it doesn't have to be obviously necessarily uh, a passive situation. I mean, a woman might actually enjoy being very active in sex. It's not about what you're doing. It's about the idea that um, this is your place to go to not be in mommy role. And for some women, that's that's their vitality. That That's what they want and like. And they like their bodies and they like the way their bodies look. And they like they don't mind their nursing breasts. They don't say things like, oh no, my breasts are just for my kid now. Um, it, it's a little cliche. It's true that it's important. There was a period of time where it was really important to normalize the experience for mothers that yes, it's normal birth control pills certainly affect um, libido and nursing certainly affects libido. You have high prolactin. Prolactin suppresses free testosterone in the blood. Um, you are tired. You're not getting enough sleep. It's important. And some women have postpartum depression and some women are taking antidepressants, which also affect sexual functioning. So it is important to normalize for women that these are all normative states. But I also think that our culture has gone a little bit too far in identifying young mothers with being antisexual. And that doesn't really fit many young women either. And does it serve us? And does it serve you? Exactly. Can you give us a story of a way that you've helped a client have a tremendous breakthrough? Yeah, I'm debating if I should share this one, but I, I, I think it's important because um, it's, it is something that does happen. So I'm thinking of a client who sort of uh, engaged in an affair and felt very conflicted about it and was kind of wondering, should I tell my partner? Should I not tell my partner? And um, the, the, the questions around the affair were also like, what is this about for me? And that was really the work in the therapy, the breakthrough. This was, um, there were obviously some issues with her marriage, but she didn't seek help there. Those were sort of fixed variables in a way. And she was kind of seeking to understand her own behavior because ironically, while the affair was going on, her interest in her husband increased. And um, what she found out about herself was that it was, by the way, it ended. And what she found out about herself was that the affair had nothing to do with her marriage. It had nothing to do with her husband. It had to do with her finding a certain part of herself and understanding what, how she needed to be seen, which she wasn't being seen in that way. And it kind of um, allowed her to understand herself in a way that helped her develop and grow. And it didn't affect the marriage. It was fine. It ended. She didn't need to tell him about it. And it was okay. That's a fascinating approach. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Okay, I know you said you don't sell sex, mm -hmm. <laughs> but maybe you could just give us, um, I don't know, the latest thing that you've bought 
that has improved your life? It doesn't have to be sexually. The latest thing that I've bought. That yeah. I've, okay, so first of all, I was going to use this opportunity, obviously, to sell my book. Oh, good. Do that then. Because that's exactly, <laughs> you asked me, what can you buy for $25 um, that, or, or less, or 100 shekels or less? That's B. Duke. That's perfectly my book because it's $24.95 on Amazon.com starting from January 1st. And for those who live in Israel, you could buy it at Pomerantz and at Stymatsky at other stores. Not all Stymatskys go to like Amik Rafaim and stuff like that. Um, so the book is certainly meant to enhance uh, marital intimacy. So I'm just going to give a plug for that. Please. Um, I think you know what has enhanced my life because I shared it with you this morning, our Nespresso machine. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Love that. But that's a little more than $25. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell us a little bit about the book. How can it help people? So what we did in the book, uh, David Ribner had previously co-authored a book with Dr. Jenny Rosenfeld called A Newlywed's Guide to Marital Intimacy. And it was more of a technical how-to book. And the idea originally was about expanding or writing a sequel to that book that would assist people throughout the life cycle. But as we were writing, I kind of felt And we together decided to expand the book and talk about emotional intimacy and what are the components of emotional intimacy and how to blend emotional and physical intimacy. And we were cognizant also of the fact that in the wider society, there is a recognition that long-term monogamous marriage, which... And, and this is kind of drawing on the work of Esther Perel, if you've heard of her. She's a pretty well-known couples therapist and she's written books about um, the paradox of intimacy and passion. And also she's written a book about affairs. And what she says is, how can you possibly desire what you already have? That the idea that you're in a relationship with somebody and you share so many roles with them co-parent and best friend and sometimes couples even work together and you also want to be erotic partners. I mean, eroticism requires mystery. It requires space. It requires not knowing. And, you know, we already know everything about our partner. And so even though that's a very legitimate conundrum, um, what we also became aware of are other approaches to monogamy, Um, because that expectation in a monogamous monogamous marriage is such a difficult one, this is why there are books out on ethical non-monogamy and, you know, how to be monogamish. Um, So we kind of looked at that and said, look, we have a problem. You know, we are committed to um, long-term monogamy. We don't really have uh, much of a... Allowance as Orthodox Jews. As Orthodox mm-hmm. Jews, yeah. I'm talking about our value system. We value monogamy, and you know, um, we we recognize that affairs are not okay. And so, within that framework, how do we use a different approach? Which is that it is exactly the safety and the vulnerability that you can bring to real intimacy that can allow you to reach the real depths of pleasure when you can let go completely and just shed every aspect. And, you know, to some extent you can do that with a stranger because he's a stranger and you're not going to see him again. So, but that's a different kind of intimacy. 
Um, that's more like a, I don't give a crap intimacy. Like I don't care. It doesn't matter. But that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at, oh, it matters. And I can show this and I can be deeply vulnerable and make all those noises and still know that the commitment is there, that my that, that I'm secure and safe. And so that's kind of the combination that we were looking for. So we talk about intimacy. We talk about um, mindfulness. We talk about um, the how-tos, the nuts and bolts, the anatomy, the physiology. And then we talk about the life cycle, infertility, pregnancy, postpartum, menopause, aging, illness. Um, and we bring uh, clinical vignettes. There's a chapter on enhancement. We have pictures of positions. We have pictures of sex toys. So we try to be quite frank and at the same time um, not be too um, overly, I don't know, what's the word? Um, not emotional? <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 it, it might, the book might feel a little unemotional because um, it's, combination of both of us. And so it's really difficult to bring a personality through in a book when you're working with a co-author. So the, the book doesn't have a, I don't think that the personalities come through much in the book. It's really just more information that, that I can kind of self, self-criticize the book in that way. Um, but I think it's really important information and really helpful information. And I hope that people buy it and read it. Good. It sounds great. Sounds like Thanks. it's going to help a lot of people. Thanks. Um, okay. Last question before we wrap up. And I like to ask everyone this, um, if you could write a one-liner on a post-it note that women would wake up and see women, maybe who are struggling sexually would wake up and see on their mirror every day, that like message that you want to drill in, what, what would it say? Yeah. So again, I think that it would say something different for everyone. And I think for some women, it might say, you know, don't forget how worthy you are and how valuable you are and, you know, love yourself and all of those sorts of things. But for other women, it might be something like, you know, try to be nice today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not all about you. It's really very individual. Right. <laughs> It's true. It's like those memes that go around, you know, yeah. some people are like, I hate this meme. Right. You know, why For is this sure. on the internet? And, right. Because and like, it doesn't speak to you. Right. But that might be the exactly message the one that you need someone to hear. needed to see that day. So Absolutely. It's true. Thank you for being so honest about that. <laughs> You're probably welcome. Thank you so much for giving us You're your welcome. time. This was really fascinating and awesome conversation. I really hope that people have awesome takeaways from it and I can't wait to hear what they are. Okay. Thanks for having me on your podcast. My pleasure. There you have it. Tully Rosenbaum, individual and couples therapist and certified sex therapist. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please DM me on Instagram at mom is crushing. I answer all of my messages there. Or please get in touch with me through my Facebook page, Mom is Crushing Fitness on Facebook. And I would love to hear your feedback. I'd love to hear from you. You can also leave a review on iTunes for this episode. And if you'd like to learn more about Tolly, go to www.tollyrosenbaum.com. In the show notes is a link to her website. There is 
also a link to sign up for her free newsletter. So make sure to sign up for that. Tali's book is I Am For My Beloved, A Guide to Enhanced Intimacy for Married Couples. And she's the co-host of the popular podcast, Intimate Judaism on jewishcoffeehouse.com. So make sure to give some of those awesome episodes a listen. This episode was brought to you by Mama's Crushing Fitness. Build your inner and outer strength in a way that is kind to your body through each stage of pregnancy and postpartum. Visit Mama's Crushing Fitness on Facebook to learn more. See you on the flip side, Fierce Mama Warriors. Feel good, feel strong.